I hope that you have realized that truth is a person, and this person is named Jesus. And if you want to be in a right relationship with truth, it means being in a right relationship with Jesus. And the opposite of truth is lies. And I want you to know, with all the fatherly affection I have for you young people, that you are told lies every single day. You're told hundreds of lies every single day. If you have a phone, you're told thousands of lies every single day. And I want you to be able to tell the difference between truth and lies. And the only way you'll be able to do that is if you know the truth from the perspective of God's word. That's what we've been trying to emphasize all week because you're not just told lies directly. You're told lies subtly. You're told lies even in the way you're encouraged to decide what's true and what isn't. Every day you're bombarded with messages that will destroy you. Now, I may seem alarmist to you right now or overboard, or you may be sitting there saying, okay, boomer, and I'm technically not a boomer. I'm sort of smacking between boomers and Gen X, but you may want to dismiss me as a generation that just doesn't get it, and I understand every generation has its problems, but and mine certainly does as well, but I want you to know you live in a world, you've never known a world anything different than the world in which you have been raised in which has a massive tolerance for incoherence. Incoherence simply means things don't make sense, but we think they do. Things don't match reality, but we think they do because they make us feel good for a little while. And we need to know the difference between truth and lies. And I would love for you to be someone who develops the discernment, the ability to discern between good and evil between right and wrong, between truth and lies, between what's life-giving and what is death-giving. And it's not easy to do. You know, I think some of our most brilliant people, our most creative people in our society are the ones telling us the lies. They're incredibly good at it. There are algorithms, as some of you may be aware of this, in social media that is crafting a world for you and teaching you to think certain ways about yourself, about where your value comes from, about who God is, about what you really need. And every day people are trying to convince you that you need all kinds of things that you really don't need. You know, there are only two industries in our culture where the customers are called users. You know what they are? The drug industry and the social media industry. And you are a user of what they are providing for you. And every day they are working incredibly hard with brilliant technology and an understanding of human psychology to manipulate you, to think in a certain way, to provide more and more billions and billions for their industry, whatever it may be. It's amazing how easily we get caught into this. You know, I was... I really think marketers and people in technology are some of the most brilliant people in our society. And some are being honest, finally. If you haven't seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma, I highly encourage you to watch it. Just about the way we're manipulated on a daily basis by these brilliantly designed algorithms to get us to think certain ways and get us to never think outside the little box they have us in. And, and I, I'll never forget, though, I, was, I, was, I took a freshman uh, English comp class in college. And it was, it was such an important class for me because 
I remember the teacher gave us advertisements and just newspaper articles. He would give us the front page of the New York Times every day. And, and he would ask us to ask what these images and these words were communicating and how manipulative, uh, manipulative they could be toward us. And as I was becoming more and more aware of this world around me that was constantly bombarding me with messages that I needed to learn to filter either according to God's word or not, I was walking in the supermarket one day. I was in my 20s, and I was walking in the supermarket, and I stopped in the cereal box line. And I looked at the cereal, and I looked where the cereal boxes were placed. And do you know what I noticed? I can't believe I had never noticed it before. The cereal they were trying to sell was at the eye level of the individuals they were trying to sell it to. What do I mean? Well, uh, the stuff at eye levels, the more healthy stuff. The stuff at the eye level of a five or six-year-old, you know, the Cocoa Pops, they're right at the eye level of the kid who is going to say, Mommy, buy this for me. And I thought, we're being manipulated every time we go in the supermarket by where the cereal boxes are placed on the shelves. And then I started paying attention to the back of cereal boxes. You know, before cell phones, people used to read the back of cereal boxes during breakfast. Anybody remember that, you old timers? Remember, you'd sit there and you'd read the cereal box, right? You didn't have anything else to read. You didn't have anything in front of you. It was hilarious. Yeah, these, yeah. yeah, my people. Yeah. So, so listen, you know, on the back of every cereal box is a little blurb. And that little blurb is designed to get you to buy that cereal box. You walk by it. You pull it off the shelf. You look at the back. And there's just, they've just got you for five or six or seven seconds with their little blurb on the back that's trying to get you to buy that cereal. So I started paying attention to the blurbs on the back of cereal boxes. And I realized on the back of those cereal boxes in these attempts to get you to buy that cereal is a whole way of viewing the world and a whole understanding of how some people make decisions and how other people make decisions. And they decide who they're going to try to reach on the back of the cereal box. And they play right into that. One of the most stark that I found is the back of the box of blueberry morning cereal. Listen to this. Listen to how they believe some people make decisions about what cereal to buy. This is blueberry morning cereal. You ready for the marketing blurb? You ready? Here's what it says. You're not going to believe this. Blue is the only color you can feel. You can see red, look green, have a tan, but blue is inside. Blue is a part of you. The deep blue of the sea stirs your soul. A bright blue sky lifts your spirits. The inky blue of midnight rouses passions deep within you. It's cereal, people, right? Listen. So it's no surprise. There's only one truly blue food, one with a taste that's deep, ambrosial. Anybody know what ambrosia is? It's the food of the gods, right? A taste you experience, a taste you feel, the taste of blueberries. My goodness, people. What the world? I mean, when I read that, I think, please... Please tell me 
No one reads that and says, well, doggone it, I'm buying blueberry morning cereal because I make decisions that way. Now listen, hey, 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 stay with me. Experiences, right? Feelings, images. They know there are people out there who make all their decisions based on feelings, experiences, and decisions. But lest you think they're not aware that there are cranky old people still running around like me, they also make cereals like Seven Reasons. <laughs> is that hilarious? How different this whole approach is? Like, right in the front of the box. I don't have time to turn around and look at the back of the box. You just tell me why to buy this. Right, right. And here it is. Seven grams of daily fiber. Natural sugars, zero calories. A very different kind of person is going to buy this who makes decisions by seven reasons, not inky blue of midnight rouses, passions deep within you. What's that all about, right? So it's just amazing, isn't it? Stay with me. Stay with me. Isn't it amazing how differently they know people think and make decisions and then play right into that? Because in a consumer culture, people trying to sell you stuff are going to try to guess how you think, and they have really good ways of doing it, and they're going to play right into that. And all the social media platforms do it. All the marketers do it. Our society is a consumer culture. It's a culture that makes decisions increasingly like the blueberry morning approach to life. I mean, even as you sit and evaluate how your week of camp is going and has been going, what sorts of ways do you evaluate that? How the worship or the preaching or the wreck or the social interactions or the food makes you feel. How, how it, how it um, fits your interests, your desires, your hobbies, your personality, your, your feelings. You know, do you have a blueberry morning approach to life? And making decisions and evaluating things? Or is it more, is this true? Is this helpful? Not do I like it. Does it sit well with me? Is it what I prefer? Does it fit my style well or not? Is it what I'm used to? No, we've got to back up and say, Lord, what's true? I'm bombarded with messages every single day of my life telling me what's true and what isn't true. And I want you to know God is the God of truth. And that means he's always good for you. He's always the one you need. And when you're thinking rightly, he's the one you want. And I believe he's made you in his image. And I believe he's given you a sense of what's right and wrong and what's true and what's not true. But we live in a culture that is so confused that people say things that make absolutely no sense, like we were say, seeing this week, and, and we think it must make sense or it, it fits what's true. And we've got to be people who back up. And as Hebrews 5 says have our senses of discernment trained to discern good from evil, to be able to tell the difference. Because you will base your whole life on what you think is true or not. What you decide is a meaningful life. What you decide will give you life. What you decide will, will help you be what God created you to be, if that's even what you believe, that God created you to be something. And so we've got to realize how how crazy our culture is. And I could give you tons of examples, but I just want to get to Jesus. So, so listen to the words of Jesus again. Again, 
This is maybe a little different than what you're used to, but I want to read significant portions of the Bible, so please pay attention more than any other time tonight when I'm reading the very words of Scripture. But what I want to look at is John chapter 8 to start off with. John chapter 8 has some incredible teaching of Jesus, but I want you to listen to how direct he is and how he teaches in a way that isn't trying just to make people happy based on where they already are. Remember, I was walking through the gym at Biola one time, Biola University, where I teach, and we have some amazing sports programs. Our women's basketball team is always a great team, and Ken Crawford was one of the coaches when I got to Biola early on, and he was old school, and he had been in the military, and he, he was talking to the ladies as I walked through the gym one time after practice, and it had obviously been a really bad practice, and, and he was unloading on them. And I'll never forget, he bellowed to these women. He said, I am not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you better. And I thought, who talks that way anymore? Who, who is willing to hear that sort of thing anymore? And, but I love that approach because you know what? You being better is going to lead to true happiness. So, so I remember hearing a guy say, about raising kids, I have no interest in a happy 10-year-old. He said, I want a healthy, mature, godly 20-year-old, which means along the way, that 10-year-old's going to be unhappy a lot of the time. You know, when my kids would come home after the first day of school, and I'll say, how do you like your new teacher? And they said, she's mean. I'm like, yes. <laughs> she's not mean. She just has standards, right? <laughs> but this, oh, she's mean, right? Uh, but, but that's how we tend to think, right? Sometimes she's mean. Don't get me wrong. All right. But she, she probably should have quit that one a long time ago. But, but usually that means this teacher ain't playing around, right? And so, so listen to Jesus because he ain't playing around. Listen, I'm, I'm just going to read a, a big old chunk here of John starting at chapter 21. You ready? Here we go. Help us, Lord. Here we go. John 8, 21. No? What's wrong? Chapter 8, verse 21. Yes? Okay. You ready? Here we go. So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, see? And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. So that the son is coming, sent by the father, representing the father, speaking the truth that God the father gives God the son as the spirit enables him to do this in this father-son-spirit way we've been seeing all week. And Jesus says, if you don't believe in me, 
If you don't believe the truth I'm teaching, especially about who I am, and put your belief and trust and rest in me, you will die in your sins. He's calling these people out. And these are religious leaders. He goes on. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. In other words, when he's crucified. I am he. That I do nothing in my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So he's teaching hard things that are contradicting what people wanted him to be saying and who they wanted him to be, but he's bringing the truth no matter what, even though it will end him up on a cross. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How, how is it you say we, you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly. Now when Jesus says truly, truly in your English Bible, that's two, two words, amen, amen. The word we say in English, amen, right? But in Greek, it's amen. And he says it twice, which is a way of saying in a New Testament way, thus saith the Lord, the way the prophets did in the Old Testament. And by the way, just, just a little note here. I get concerned sometimes that the power of this word amen, which means this is God's word, so be it. This is the word of God. This is how it is. Count on it. Bet on it. This is truth. We, we, we get a little flippant maybe even in the church, especially with the word amen. You know, nice day. Amen. She's cute. Amen. You know, it, we just throw it around all the time. We probably want to reserve the word for a little more meaning, right? Because Jesus is saying here, amen, amen. What I'm about to say is absolute truth, in other words. And, and that's translated truly, truly. Or in the King James. Anybody know it's in the King James? Family, family, yes. Um, so, so he says, truly, truly to them. Where was I? Oh, yes, 434. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the, the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your father, that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have but one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Oh, snap. 
And your will is to do your father's desires. That gets thrown around a lot too, bless you. Anyway, um, <laughs> here we go. Listen, listen. You are of your father the devil, verse 44, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you're not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. <gasps> yeah, I know. But I do know him. And I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. <gasps> Do you know what he just did? He used the sacred divine name that God gives to Moses at the burning bush when Moses says, I need to tell the people who you are. And he says, tell them, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. And give me a name grounded in that basic verb, I am, and call me Yahweh. And the sacred name of God, the most sacred name of God, used almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament. The second closest is Elohim, not even used 3,000 times. And, and here he uses that sacred divine name for himself. The humble carpenter claims to be God himself and be speaking with the authority and the truth of God himself. And he says, anything that doesn't align with me and my words and my ways is a lie from the pit of hell and the father of lies who wants nothing more than to murder you, to, to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus is not pulling any punches here. He, he's not preaching the way we tend to think loving people preach. But love hates lies. It hates evil. And it loves goodness and righteousness. And only wants what will give life to people. And will be intolerant completely of anything that will destroy people and dishonor God. Yet we live in a society that sees tolerance no matter what as love. Tolerance, putting up with anything that someone just decides is right for them. Well, that's kind, that's loving, that's the Christian thing. And I hope you're seeing how unchristian tolerating lies is. Jesus does not agree with that perspective. 
And again, I'm not asking you to agree with anything I'm saying. I'm just asking you to, to decide whether or not I am getting this right from the word of God. And I think I am. I'm just reading it to you. Right? And, and it's there on the page. And so please realize that even though we live in a world that will call you unchristian, if you're willing to call out destructive lies, we still need to be willing to do it. Now, when I say call out destructive lies, what I mean is, first and foremost, those lies that are lurking in my own heart. I'm not telling you to be some culture warrior, first and foremost. I'm telling you to ask God to show you the things you believe that aren't from him. Because you get bombarded with them every single day. You get, what, two, three hours max in church hearing the word typically in one week? And how many countless hours do you get being fed lies from sources as you drive down the road on billboards? Everywhere you turn, just realize that proportionally you get lied to way more than you get told the truth, even if you have good godly families and churches. The ratios are so out of whack in a social media saturated culture that you're getting lied to all the time. And please don't think you're smarter or stronger than you actually are. None of us is. And we need to go to God's word and get with people who are saturated with God's word to know the difference. Because you can tell Jesus is not messing around here. He loves people more than anyone has ever loved people because he's loving them with God's love. And in the process, he's saying some really hard things. And so we've got to be people of truth who love people in the truth and want what's best for them. And so we need to understand what sin is. Jesus says, if, if you don't believe in him, you'll die in your sins. Now, sin is probably the most common word we use in the church to describe the, this, this rebellion against God. But I, 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 I wonder if the way we're lied to most is in the area of sin and what it is. Because here, here's the deal. I think that the easiest thing to prove that we Christians believe is that humans have a serious sin problem. I mean, do you have to really be convinced that human beings have this tendency, this inward bent toward destructive, self-serving, selfish behavior? I mean, what do kids need to be taught? To share, right? The instinct is me, my, even babies, man. You ever see a baby and you're like, hello, and it goes, ah! I'm like, wow, uh, what was that all about? If that child was bigger, it'd kill me right now. Right? It, there's something in a human being that, that is so, so me-focused. Martin Luther called the inward curvature of the self. I mean, if you don't think humans have a sin problem, do you ever read the news? If you don't think humans have a sin problem, do you ever take an honest look in your own heart? We do. We have a serious sin problem in this world we need to understand and come to terms with. But I bet... Outside good teaching in the Bible, I bet you've seen the word sin way more than anywhere else in one place. You know where? Dessert menus. Now, I have a collection of them. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a student of culture. That's, that's one of my areas of expertise. I, I exegete culture. I've been even exegeting the culture of Hume SoCal this week, trying to watch what's going on. And so I collect, like, like my ridiculous cereal boxes, I collect samples of advertisements that have the word sin in them. You want to see some? I got some for you here. Here we go. You ready? Look, look at this verse before we dive into these. 
A thorough, uh, this is not a verse. Alan Ross says, a thorough knowledge in the word of God and unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for spiritual victory over the word, the flesh, and the devil. That's powerful. Um, look at this, 2 Thess 2. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Is that powerful? But, but here come the examples of, of sin that I'm talking about. Look at that. Cookie dough conquest. Sinfully delicious. What's that about? So good it's sinful. Sinfully delicious. Look at that. This, this is a, a, a cheesecake place in, in San Francisco. They, Confess your love for cheesecake. Forgive me chocolate, for I have sinned. I've not yet had my daily confection. Orange County Register, guilty pleasures. Even for a guy who's paid to indulge, these dishes are sinfully over the top. This was in the pharmacy next to my house. Nail polish. Sinful colors. I walked in and saw that. And before I took a picture, I almost flipped the table over because I'm so concerned. Now, let me ask you, not everybody all at once, please. Look, you got to stay with me. You guys just have these conversations so easily. Just stay with me. We're going somewhere here. We're going somewhere. Listen, one person, just one person, raise your hand. I will call on you. Don't start shouting out. What does this constant message of marketers using the word sin to describe usually the best dessert on the menu, right? What does it do to you? Yeah, tell me your name. Jackson, what does it do? That's right, and it implies indulging in sinful activities. Good, good, good. Yeah, yeah. Good, excellent. Way to go, Jackson. Oh, what else, what does it do? Tell me, back here. Yeah, yeah. What is it? Kaylee? It's what sinning? Willful sinning, yeah. That's right, yeah. That's right. It desensitizes you, right? Right? It, it, you're supposed to see sin as having an effect on you, and it, it just numbs that. Yeah, excellent. Good. One more. What do you got? It makes everyone That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so true, but, but come on, seriously, how silly do you feel like that's it? I'm going to buy some sinful nail polish, and, and you go, and you, like, get this little rebellion out. Yeah, it, it minimizes sin, it trivializes sin, it mocks the very concept of sin, right? And if it does that to sin, what does it do to righteousness, to goodness? It makes it boring, What you really don't want. Right? That's the G-rated movie. Then nothing interesting in it. That's how we start to view righteousness. And so when this is the constant barrage, again, I'm telling you, you get lied to all the time. You don't realize that when you walk by a nail polish advertisement in the pharmacy that you're being lied to. But you are. And, and we've got to become more aware of it and pay attention to these things. And look how the Bible describes sin. 
missing the mark, evil, disobedience, transgression, stepping over the line, iniquity, lawlessness, trespass, ignorance, godlessness, wickedness, unbelief, unrighteousness, unholiness. Do you hear all these ways the Bible talks about sin? It's not the way we even tend to often in the church. Because here's what we do. Those are hard things to have said about me. I don't like that. I think, like I said, the easiest thing for us to prove that we believe as Christians is that humans have a sin problem. But do you know what I think the hardest thing for us to accept is? That we have a sin problem. I don't like hearing that about myself. I don't like hearing that, that I am disobedient. I'm polluted. I'm a lawbreaker. I go beyond God's laws. I'm ignorant. I'm godless. I'm wicked. I'm unbelieving. I'm unrighteous. I'm unholy. I don't like that. That makes me feel icky, and I'm not interested in feeling icky, right? But God tells the truth like a good doctor. You can never sue God for spiritual malpractice. He doesn't minimize your problem, because if you minimize the the problem, you'll just think a Band-Aid solution will do the job. And you need more than a Band-Aid to solve the sin problem that we have. And you know what else we'll do in the church even? We'll just talk about the symptoms of sin. So I won't say I'm disobedient, rebellious. I'll say I'm broken. I'm wounded. I'm hurting. I'm needy. All true. And I will have compassion toward you, and I hope you do toward me in those realities in my life because we are all victims of life in a fallen world. But you know what? We're all part of the problem, too. We're just not victims. We're victimizers. We've all got sinful hearts. The Bible says no one is without a sinful, rebellious heart toward God. And so we we are both at the same time to be cared for and had compassion toward and also be called out for the reality of sin in our hearts by God and by one another. Exhort, rebuke, correct, the Bible commands us to do with each other. And that's a loving thing. I know it's almost impossible for some of you to hear correct, rebuke, exhort as a good, loving, positive thing. But it is. Please, redefine love the way the Bible does. I mean, these examples of Jesus preaching with this, this bold, approach is loving it's because he loves that he preaches this way and so please realize these terms are the way the bible describes it coming from all these different angles you know i have a strange fascination with mike tyson but you know mike tyson is he's kind of old now but when i was when i was your age mike tyson was like the baddest man on the planet he he would come in the ring with a towel beat a guy up in 15 seconds and walk out of the ring just but but Mike is brilliant and tender-hearted and crazy and incredibly tough and has done horrible things. But he said, do you know he raises homing pigeons? He loves his pigeons. And um, he's from the Bronx. He was just an overweight kid. Stop, 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 stop. He's an overweight kid who had a speech impediment. He just, I, I just, I wish I could be friends with Mike. But anyway, um, Mike says some brilliant things and some completely whack things. Do you know just a few months ago he was on an airplane and a guy was sitting behind Mike Tyson, kicking the back of his seat and like pouring water on him. Well, just, just get in the lion's cage at the zoo and poke it. It's so Mike put up with that for 15 minutes and then turned around and pummeled the guy. And I'm like, dude, you had it coming. right? But anyway, Mike, Mike had to go to uh, rehab for anger, which is funny. 
and you live, you make a living beating people up for a living that you, you had to do that. But he did, have, but he bit a chunk out of Evander Holyfield's ear. I don't know, if, you know tw- two chunks actually. But, but he had to go, he had to go to get counseling for six months. And he got out and somebody asked him a question. I'll never forget it. This reporter said, Mike, what'd you learn about yourself in counseling? And he said, I learned two very important things about myself, he said. <laughs> he said, he said, I learned two very important things about myself. I learned that I have absolutely no self-esteem. And I may be the biggest egomaniac on the planet. And you think, you can't be both. Yes, you can. The more you put yourself at the center of the universe, the more you realize you don't belong there. And so insecurity and egomania do go together. And so so we've got to realize this about ourselves. But there are just three things before we're done that I want you to know about sin. One, sin is, here's a great definition of sin. Anything in the creature which does not express or which is contrary to the holy character of the creator. Notice how God-centered this definition is. This isn't, I'm weak, I'm wounded, I'm struggling, I'm hurt, I'm I'm frail. No, this is a a God-centered definition. Uh, Second Timothy puts it this way. People will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. That's a really good way to define sin. You guys with me? All right, this is really important. Hang in there with just a few more minutes. All right? I'm lo- I know I'm losing semi over here for some reason. I don't see what's going on, but you've got to stay with me. You'll never hear this again. This will save your life. It really will. It'll save your life. Listen, um, three things. Sin is a heart problem. Sin is a worship problem. Sin is a relationship problem. Sin is a heart problem. Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all have this heart problem called sin. Two... Uh, we'll skip there. Two, sin is a worship problem. Sin is always and ultimately related to God. It's personal and it's relational. Romans 1 says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And that is the fundamental problem with sin. Everybody worships. Don't let people tell you you religious people worship. No, everybody gives themselves to something, devotes themselves to something as what will give them life ultimately. It may be a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, a job, a career, a hobby, a sport, uh, accomplishments of some kind. We all give ourselves to something is what will give us life. And the problem is we worship the creature rather than the creator. And the great exchange takes place in exchanging God's truth for worship of the creator. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness, it says, before it says this in Romans 1. That's why David, when he, he confesses sin, that's, all about, that's why David, I'll get there. That's why David, when he confesses sin, says, come on, guys, what in the world? Stop just giving yourself permission to have a little conversation. Seriously, just a few more minutes. I don't know where you get this idea that it's cool to just start having conversations in a meeting like this, but it's not, okay? Stay with me, all right? Um, when you're a teacher someday, you'll completely agree with me, even if you don't right now. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then listen to what he says, against you, only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, he sinned against Bathsheba in this, what he's confessing here, this woman he committed adultery with, her husband, he had him murdered, Uriah. He broke half the Ten Commandments in this one sin. But he says, my problem's with God. 
Now, he's got problems on a horizontal level, too, but he's saying my fundamental problem, if I don't take care of this problem, no other problem will be taken care of. And so he's got a problem with God fundamentally. And sin is a relationship problem. Your iniquities made a separation between you and God. And the wages of sin is death. We're separated from God. We're separated from one another. We're separated from the creation itself in, in uh, adversarial relationship. We're separated within ourselves. We've got all this conflict and warring within ourselves. There's separation at every level. And it's because of sin. And the wages of sin is death. That's the final result. And realize it's a spiritual problem. It's a heart problem. It's a worship problem. It's a relationship problem. But, but it, there's a simplicity to it as well. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3 in the garden where Adam and Eve said, no, we will determine good and evil for ourselves and, and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for ourselves. We're not listening to God. We're making the decisions. The thing we've been trying to combat all week, this subjective, relative, individual determination of truth that isn't listening to the creator's determination of truth. And that's the fundamental problem. It's disobeying God's word. Anybody remember Smokey the Bear? I just saw a little picture of him. I just drove by Smokey over here. Does anybody remember Smokey's old motto? Tell me your name. Raise your hand with beautiful pigtails. I saw you shoot your hand up. You're like, oh, she's hiding now over there. All right, so what's Smokey's old saying? Yeah, that's right. Only you can prevent forest fires. Remember his posture? This. He's pointing at you. Personal responsibility. This is my precious daughter, Paige. That's my daughter, Paige, when she was little. She's amazing. Um, and this is Smokey. Ah, this is Smokey, right? And see, he's pointing at you. He's pointing at you. Smokey's pointing at you, holding you personally responsible. Do you know Smokey? This is old school Smokey. This isn't what he looks like anymore. And he no longer says only you can prevent forest fires. Do you know who starts forest fires? 15 to 24-year-olds. So they market to you guys. And they've completely changed Smokey because they know how you think and they know what you don't want to listen to. This is what Smokey looks like now. Oh. Yeah. Here's what he does. Shh. Here's what he does. He rewards you for doing the right thing. He doesn't hold you responsible for doing the wrong thing. Isn't that interesting? And listen to the guy who designed the new ad campaign based on how he knows the psychology of young people works today. The hugs are part of the decision to turn Smokey into a character who's depicted as rewarding people rather than entreating them or admonishing them to take personal responsibility. It's moving the tone away from sober, which doesn't resonate with young people, while maintaining the seriousness of the issue. Smokey is changing from a teacher or authority figure into a model of positive reinforcement. Now, I'm all for positive reinforcement. I'm all for hugs. I'm all for cheering people on. I, I try to think, say 10 positive things in, in, for every one negative thing. But do you have a category for being responsible? Not blaming your parents or your teacher or whatever. Not minimizing, spiritualizing, trivializing, mocking the reality of sin in your own heart. Do you have a category for being responsible for your rebellion before God? You know, we've said a lot of words about what sin is. I can't put it any better way than sin is giving God the middle finger. And that is a relational problem with a holy God who hates sin and rebellion and evil and created us for himself. So when we flip him off, he doesn't take that lightly. Not because he's insecure, but because he created us for himself. And we will only find life when we find him. But here's the beautiful news. In spite of our rebellion, 
in spite of our hatred of him, in spite of being an enemy of God, even if that rebellion looks like passivity, it's still rebellion. In spite of that, God loves us so much that he came up with a plan right in Genesis 3 to solve the sin problem we all started. Here's how it puts it, Genesis 3. I will put enmity. You'll be at war, Satan, between you and the woman. Humanity and Satan, in other words. And between your offspring and hers, that's us, and Satan's offspring, those who are opposed to God. He, the woman's offspring, Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He'll take a hit going to the cross, but he's going to wipe you out. And that's what we rest in. That's what we're going to talk about tomorrow night, God's solution to this sin problem. But if you don't take your sin seriously, tomorrow night will mean nothing to you. And I want it to mean everything to you. I want it to mean the world to you, that God has a way of being forgiven for your sin and restored in your relationship with him. He has come up with a way to do that. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, help us to love you and know you and uh, trust you and obey you and fear you and submit to you and rely on you as you were created. You created us too. Lord, our sin is this horrible obstacle to that. This horrible relational separation, the death that comes from it, the evil that's in our world everywhere. But Lord, thank you that you have a solution, a sufficient one, a glorious one one that glorifies you and restores us in our relationship with you. And Lord, I pray you'd be working in all of our hearts in our conversation and the worship that we'll do. And Lord, in everything, that you'd help us to know you and love you and depend on your solution to our sin problem in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.